Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for what it means to us. We're grateful that it has given us what is true, what is right, what is good. Father, we beseech you this morning. We ask of you. Stir the hearts of your people. God, bring salvation. Convict and convince and transform. May we see the hope of Israel. May we see the true salvation that you have given to us. And may we rejoice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I was a youngster, I used to watch uh, Disney Channel cartoons. I was in another day and age. But I remember the story of Casey... At the bat. They had a cartoon for that. Any of you remember that one? And then when I got into high school, I read the poem, Casey at the Bat. And I'm going to read, not the whole thing, but a section of Casey at the Bat. If you're not familiar with the poem, Casey at the Bat, it's about a baseball player. And the ninth inning of a, an important game in Mudville. And uh, two... Players uh, get out, so there's two outs, and and there are two other batters that are needed uh, to get uh, on base, and they're not very good, but they end up getting on base. And everyone gets excited because the best hitter on the team, which is Casey, comes up to bat. And they know it's game time. Then from 5,000 throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley. It rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt t'was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance gleamed in Casey's eye, a sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded, unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar. Like the beating of the snow, the storm waves on stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted one in the stand. And it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew, but Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, strike two. 
fraud, cried the maddened thousands, and Echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. They knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere there is light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. A poem you can never forget. What a great, vivid illustration. And if you had one word to describe Casey, what would it be? Very proud, very prideful, very arrogant, very, he just lets two strikes go by, not my style. And then when he had the chance, he misses it. This morning, we focus on that very thing, upon pride and upon what it does to us and how it affects us. In particular, this morning, we'll look at another character, not Casey, but a character in the scripture, and you know him as King Nebi, or Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to look at at what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in his pride and his own testimony on how he handled that situation. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Daniel chapter 4. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, but there were not three in the furnace. How How many were there? There were four. God was there to show that he is a God who saves. And as we say in this church, help me out, Stephen, Jesus saves sinners that repent. And that's what we know, that that Jesus, the one that looked like the Son of God, was in there saving his people in in a similar way that he saves us from the furnace if we repent and believe and follow him. What a great message. Amen? Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me read to you our verse of the year. We're getting close to the end of the year, but I will read it to you uh, for these last couple of weeks. It is 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Together in 2022, let's end strong as a church and fellowship in this Christmas season, doing fellowship together. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no what church? No darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Daniel chapter 4. As we think of Daniel... And what we've learned so far, uh, just the last few chapters at least, chapter 2, we learned that God reveals. And remember, that was the revelation that there was going to be an eternal kingdom. That that there was a statue that the rock 
not formed by any human hand, came and destroyed every other kingdom that it, that it hit. And that rock we know is who? It's Jesus. And he established a kingdom that would endure through all of the ages. Jesus is the hope of the ages. Amen. That was chapter 2. Chapter 3, he rescues. And that's what we looked at last week, that he rescues from the fiery furnace. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued because Jesus saves. And then here we look at chapter 4. So he reveals, he rescues, and today he rules. He rules. And that's where we look at Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Now, let me read the first three verses for you. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seems... It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is what? An everlasting kingdom. He's learning, isn't he? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion, his rule, endures for the ages. From generation to generation. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar, and this is a preface to his story. And he's telling this as a flashback, if you will. So the first three verses are, all right, everybody, around the world, I want you to know that, that I've met the Most High God. And the Most High God has shown me in signs and wonders these great things that have happened. He rules, he has a kingdom that endures, and he's from generation to generation. He has proven himself to me, and, and I want to tell you. And, and is that not the message we have, Christian? Right? Has God not proved his goodness to you over and over? And does he not tell us to go into all nations, make disciples as he told his first disciples? Go and make them, baptize them. And, and prove the work that the Spirit of God is doing. That's what he does. So our testimony is very similar to what Nebuchadnezzar has. It, it, this is great. Story time with Nebi can be story time with, with Pappy. Or story time with Eli. Or Carol. And this is, it's the same story that we tell. That Jesus has an everlasting kingdom. And that he rules over it with justice. And with equity. And with rightness. Let me continue. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease. He was happy. Just being a happy king. Doing happy things. Looking at happy clouds. He was in his house. Prospering in his palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies or the thoughts, the images... And the visions in my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. That they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers came in. And I told them the dream. Now that's a little different, isn't it? This time he's going to tell them the dream, not expect them to know the dream. Then I told them the dream, but they could not make it known to me its interpretation. So a couple of things here. Nebuchadnezzar's happy, and then he has a, a dream. Now, I had a dream this week. I told my family about it. It was very disturbing to me. 
And, I, and it, my, my dreams are not very detailed. Kind of like me. I'm not very detailed. But I, w- I was driving around in the mountains. And then I, I ran into this, uh, this swamp in the mountains. And then my, my car sunk in the swamp. And I made it out. And, but I'm in the middle of nowhere with nobody around me. And, and I got really concerned and worried. Like, my car's gone. I'm all alone. I don't have anything with me. What am I going to do? And I woke up. And I remember waking up. And, and have you ever woken up and going, oh, oh, it's just a dream. Have you ever done that? Like, I, I, it was a sense of relief. Like, you, I, don't, I can't explain it. But I was grieved and worried. And when I woke up, there was this sense of, Oh, it's just a dream. Thank you, Lord. And I remember thinking that. And, and here's Nebuchadnezzar. He wakes up, but he's not relieved. He's the opposite. He's, he's grieved. He's concerned. Because he's seen things, and he wants somebody to untie the dream for him. Literally, that's what the word, the interpretation there in verse 6 means. He wants somebody to untie it for him. Well, what's going on here? I've got this, this difficult thing that's hit me, and... And he calls all the, look at verse 7. He calls, who does he call? Magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers. They all come in and what do they do? They, they do nothing. I was reading one commentary by uh, uh, Dale Ralph Davis. who's got a great commentary on Daniel if you're interested in studying on your own. Uh, he, he said, yeah, this reminds him that... When, when crunch time comes, the pagans have a hard time hitting the ball. Uh, when, when God has established the world and God has given a dream here to Nebuchadnezzar, it, it's hard for the godless to understand what's going on. And, and uh, you can think about this in a sports analogy. I, it's funny. I, I follow, as y'all probably know, I follow... Uh, Football a good bit in college football at least, and uh, I had a neighbor a couple of years ago. He he would always put an Oklahoma sign in his yard, and I always thought it was funny. Uh, and and because uh, as we talked, he said, "Yeah, people all the time they remind me that that I always pull for Choklahoma because whenever they get to the big game, what do they always do every year? They choke. They can't." Make it happen. And this is the pagans when they're coming to, or the godless, when they're trying to hear from God. All they can do is is not comprehend that. And and this is what happens. So verse 8. And Daniel came in before me. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He was a man named Belteshazzar. After the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him in the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Did you catch that? What did he consider Daniel to be? Just another magician. Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. This tells you a little bit about his state of mind, doesn't it? He believed that there, there were many gods and that they were all um, peers in doing their things. And, and, and Daniel was a part of, of knowing 
all of the gods. He said, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Daniel. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the heaven and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I mean, it sounds like a Bob Ross painting, right? Everything's great. It's happy. We've got a big tree. Everything is great. And and this is, as we'll see, this was the state that Nebuchadnezzar was in. He was in a happy place. He was doing what he needed. Now, do I need to remind you, if y'all are familiar, uh, anybody familiar with the seven ancient wonders of the world? One of them resided in Babylon. You know what that was? The Hanging Gardens. Exactly. Thank you. The Hanging Gardens, uh, Peyton reminds us, were, and I looked at some pictures and renditions, and they were magnificent. It was, I mean, if you enjoyed plants and stuff like that, it, the, the images they had of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were, were just fantastic. Plants everywhere, uh, just a beautiful city. And the interesting thing about it is Babylon is in the middle of what? Of a desert. Like, it's in the middle of the desert. So you can think of people who would be travelers or sojourners walking around and then seeing and coming upon, seeing maybe even from a distance, this place and going, is it a mirage? It looks so beautiful. And they, as they approach, they see this beautiful hanging garden in a, in a city in the middle of the desert. Like, what an oasis of life this is. And this is Nebuchadnezzar and what he's made. He's so proud of it. Now, we see the way he did it, burning people in furnaces and, and all those sorts of things. But to him, life was good. Nobody told him what to do. He did whatever he wanted. He was a giant tree in the midst of a desert in a happy place. So he thought. So he thought. Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher. (laughs) A watcher. A holy one. Someone greater. Someone in authority. Came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Now, that's not a very happy Bob Ross painting anymore, is it? The cheap tree just got lopped off, cut down and we're not in a happy place anymore. It's disturbing to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 15. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's 
and let a beast's mind be given to him. Oh, how odd. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is a decree by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the most high God does what? Rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. That's disturbing. This king I, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Well, as you can see, why this might be disturbing with with the destruction of something good. And even the the turning uh, from this watcher who is in authority, who is truly in authority, coming and, and transforming the mind of this one for seven periods of time. You can see, is he concerned that it might have to do with the fall of his great kingdom? You know, sometimes the, the people who are in charge are the most paranoid at times. You've noticed that, right? Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now here we see an interesting thing. This is Daniel, the great wise Daniel, who is the dream interpreter, as he's known in the kingdom. And he becomes, he becomes sad when he hears the dream. Why is he sad? Yeah, he knows what's about to happen. And, and I'll, I'll fill you in just a little bit as, as a prequel here. This is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. And, and Daniel knows that. And, and it's interesting. Look, set the stage here. Remember, Daniel is a book where he endures generation to generation. Daniel's around a long time from young man to old man. God is showing that the kingdom of God endures from generation to generation. Daniel knows that. Daniel knows where he is in a foreign land. Being faithful to God in a, in a world of unfaithful people who don't like God. Remember, it was just last chapter that Nebuchadnezzar tried to burn his friends alive. Anybody tried to burn your friends alive? Stephen tried to burn me alive once. That was, but, and I still like him. This is a man who should not be well liked by Daniel, right? I mean, he tried to burn his friends. But Daniel, when he hears the word, what is he? 
He's, he's not happy that the guy that tried to kill his best friends has bad news. Is, it, is that not weird to you? Like you think of someone who's persecuting your best friends and in fact tried to kill them. How would you feel if bad news came upon them? You'd probably smile and say, you deserve that, punk. Right? But Daniel, his heart, he's sad. This is strange. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it's, it's so odd. And, and here's what I'm, I'm gathering. This is like, and we studied the story of Stephen. Remember Stephen? He was the first what, Jeff? We studied that, the first martyr in church, in the book of Acts. First martyr, Stephen. And what did he say as they were throwing stones at him? Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. Stephen's heart was so gracious towards those who were killing him in the moment. That's not natural, is it? No, it's not. It's not natural at all. And it can only take a working of the Spirit of God in our hearts to have this about him. And Daniel has said, and so I just I want to take a step back and say, Hear what's going on here, and I want to make a, 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 a bit of an application for us, just a thought. Every Sunday morning in, in my Sunday school class, we pray for family members of our class members. We ask God to bring salvation in our families. We all have people that we love, that we care about, that do not know the Lord. They're not people that have tried to kill us or our friends, but we love them. And our hearts are, are broken for people. We talked about some young men in the class who used to be a part of our church. Ones we talked about last night, Tyler, that my heart breaks for. We prayed for them this morning. People may, not walking in obedience to what God has for them. This is the heart of someone who loves God. And you say, well, why? And here's, here's my theory behind that. A true Christian, someone who believes and knows God, as Daniel did, as Stephen did, and, and hopefully as you and I do, we know the grace that God has poured out upon us. In other words, we know where we were. We know how lost we were. We know what type of person we were. And when we look at the grace of God and see the redemption and the kindness that he showed us, not to give us what we deserve, but to give us life and hope and victory. And when we look at those around us that don't have that, we, we wish and hope and pray, oh God, I hope and pray they see the same thing that you've done for me. And, and my heart is broken. As I prayed this morning at this altar right there. Uh, about 50 minutes ago. God save souls. Bring people to a knowledge to know who you are. That you are God who saves sinners that repent. Because you died. You were buried. You rose from the grave to give life to all who will believe. This is Daniel's heart. Now, uh, 
I've, I've taught you as a church the definition for the word love. I, I like to read, go over it. We might have some guests here this morning who don't know the definition of love. So church, can you share with our guests and maybe newcomers, what is the definition of love? If you couldn't hear that, folks, they said wanting the best for someone and doing something about it. Uh, it, it is two pawned. It is twofold. It is wanting the best. It means there's a desire to want to help or want somebody to have the best circumstances they have. They can. And secondly, it's not just wanting that. It's not just feeling nice to someone. It's, it's wanting the best and then doing something about that. It is trying to accomplish making the best happen for someone. And so, Christian, as we think about our family members that we're praying for, we want the best. But, but it, it's not just thinking the best. It's, it's doing something about that as well. And so this is, this is David's heart. I mean, I'm sorry, Daniel's heart. Daniel's going to say, all right, king, this is bad news, but I want you to watch. Daniel's going to do something about it. He just doesn't feel bad. He wants the best for the king, and he does something about it. The guy that tried to kill his best friends, he's going to give him the way of salvation. Y'all with me? All right. Check it out. Verse 20. How does he begin that? He begins by being honest and telling the truth, which is something a lot of times we struggle with, isn't it? The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven and was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and whose fruit abound, abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade and, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is, it is you, okay? You're, you're the tree. Who have grown and, and become strong. You're the best hitter on the team. Okay. Your greatness has grown and it reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. My how the Lord has blessed Nebuchadnezzar. And not merely for his sake, but to demonstrate his power, his kingdom is eternal. He saves sinners that repent. We've seen the reasons that God is using Nebuchadnezzar and he's given him these great blessings in order to, to reveal these things. God doesn't just do things arbitrarily or let things happen. God ordains all of history with purpose and, and he's showing purposefully who he is and what he does. I am the ruler. I save those who seek after me. But that's what God is doing. He's using Nebuchadnezzar for those purposes. But that's not it. God is going to and does give, but God also does do what? It takes away. That's what Job said. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away, but what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 23. And because this, the king saw the watcher. The overseer, if you will, the one in authority, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump, the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. 
in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over it. This is one of those things where Nebuchadnezzar knew and was was troubled. And now he gets the truth from Daniel, who's willing to tell him this is going to be bad. This is the interpretation of King, verse 24. It is a decree from the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, most believe seven years, but whatever it is, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There is purpose in all of this. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar is going to become like the mind of an animal. He's going to act like an animal, eating grass in the field. Sleeping in the field and, and the wet with dew is when does dew happen? It happens at night in the mornings. That, that's sleeping out in the field. You're going to turn into an animal. Nebuchadnezzar, the highest tree in the field that gave all of these resources, help, love, all of these things to people. You are going to come less than human. In the words of Casey at the bat, okay, you're going to strike out. You're going to be the bane of Mudville. You will be greatly humbled. Why, church? Because God has a purpose in all of this. God is humbling Nebuchadnezzar because what will he know? Look at the end of verse 25. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it. To whom he will. You know, sometimes the Lord humbles us. He certainly humbled Nebuchadnezzar for us to realize how great God is. Can anybody agree to that? Have you ever been humbled by God to show you how great that he is? And you might be going through some of that process even now. But I I have been through processes in my life where I've said, oh, God, I... I recognize, Lord, now. I recognize the frailty by which my kingdoms, my life holds together. You are God. I am, and I I have been, times in my life, I have been on my face before God. Prostrate. Saying, God, you are mighty You have humbled me. Thank you, O God. I now see the might of who you are. You know, folks, that truly describes that salvation experience that we have, doesn't it? You ever been in a place where you thought, I'm so little and God is so big. You ever been a place where I, 
I am so sinful, but God is so holy. I need his, his grace and his saving power. Have you ever been there? That, that's uh, where we meet God is what, what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's, it's where we're humbled to know the greatness of, of God and who he is. If you've never been there this morning, I invite you, go before God. Learn who he is. It will humble you greatly and bring you to a place where you will respond like Nebuchadnezzar does. I want to tell the world, God is the most high God. God is the most high God. I serve him. And as we in the new covenant and the hope of the ages has come, his name is Jesus. And we proclaim him and we worship him. That is where we are, Christian. Verse 26. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Again, who rules? Heaven rules. God rules. And you are going to realize that you're the biggest, baddest dude in all of the land. But you're going to be stumped and turned into less than human. But you're going to realize that I am ruling from heaven. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And your iniquities by showing what? What had he just done? Had he shown mercy to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? No. And this is what Daniel does so great. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable. Break off your sin. In other words, what's the word we use today? Repent, Nebuchadnezzar. Break it off. Turn around. Change your ways. Start showing mercy to the oppressed. That there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. If God is gracious and kind, he may restore you. He may lengthen your prosperity. But if you don't repent, he's absolutely not going to. And there are stories in the Bible. We think of, of Hezekiah. If you remember Hezekiah, he got a lengthening of his days when he was supposed to die. And God granted him that. Uh, remember Uzziah? God said, you're going to be judged because he went in and he did the, the, the censor before God. And only the priest was supposed to do that. And he, he got proud and arrogant and said, well, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. God would judge him. Pride. What does Proverbs 16 say about pride? If you don't have it, look at Miss Stacy's got it up there. Pride goes before what? Destruction. And a haughty spirit before the fall. If you let two strikes go by because they're not your style, there's a great chance that that one you get won't be the one you need. Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide spoil with the proud. Do y'all believe that? Y'all really believe that? You know how many compromises people make in order to not be with the poor? I mean, you look around. Our world. We were, I was talking with my younger three sons yesterday about you know, the world and what, what's happening? Remember in Walmart parking lot, we were talking about it, and 
How many compromises people make so that they can have power or money. And it, and it ruins other people. And, and urge them to consider the decisions you make. Because the Bible says if we believe it, it's better to be off with a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil or celebrate with the riches of the proud. That's what the scripture says. Do we believe it? James says it like this. Watch this. This is so powerful. But he gives more grace. Therefore, the scripture says, God opposes the proud. But what does he do? Gives grace to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar reached a place where his tree was so tall that he could just throw people in a furnace and not care. Because he was that great and, and God is calling him to recognition to his mind. That's not the way it works. That's not what is right and good. And in fact, that's really more like an animal than it is a human. God did not create humans in their, in their purest sense to be domineering overlords. That injured others. God made us to be a blessing and a channel of his goodness and grace to other humans. Right? I mean, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of heaven that we live in. Is that God has called us to love and to sacrifice for others. To help others. And that's, that's the picture here. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're more like an animal in the way you're acting. What do animals do? They eat other animals. They kill people that come on their territory. They, that's what they do. And Nebuchadnezzar, that's what you've become. So I want to urge you this morning, church, as we wrap up. Don't think you're immune to big tree disease. Don't think you're immune to Casey syndrome. It would be safe to argue to each of us that we've all got areas of pride in our lives when we look at other people where we feel we're better. There would be areas in our life when we think, well, I've got the Bible figured out. I don't really need to learn anymore. Or maybe, well, the church is doing fine without me helping out in this area. I don't need to invest. Or, man, I, I, study, I read my Bible every day. I must be better than this person. There are areas in which we all battle with big tree syndrome. And so this morning I give to you the words that Daniel gave to the king. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Church, may we, we be a church that practices righteousness in the things we do. Doing things right. And well, may we be a people who show mercy to others rather than always just looking out for ourselves or trying to get revenge. And I'm calling young people, y'all look at me from a, in your homes. I know sometimes with your brothers or sisters, sometimes with your mom or your dad, it, it, You feel like you're the center of the world. What you want matters more than what others want. 
But that's not the kingdom way of thinking. Husbands, wives, sometimes we get to the place where we think, well, she doesn't consider my needs. He doesn't care about me. You need to do this. You need to do that. Pride does a lot of things. And for here, the message of Nebuchadnezzar is it ruined him. But let me close with this. But the grace of God, and as we finish our story uh, next week, the grace of God is this. God didn't leave Nebuchadnezzar to die in the field as an animal. He could have. Did Nebuchadnezzar earn that? He sure did. I mean, we just see snapshots of his character and we can see this was a dirty, rotten man. God gave him the grace to recognize who he was and find redemption so that we see him testifying to the nature of God. Let me share with you, if you're in here this morning, God's grace is abundant. God's grace is bigger than we know and can comprehend. And if you've never found yourself in awe of God's mercy and God's grace, I want to invite you this morning to recognize that Jesus Christ saves even the worst of sinners, no matter what you've done or not done. Jesus saves sinners that repent. And if you will repent of your sin this morning and cry out to Jesus to save you and say in your mind or pray in in your heart, Lord, I am willing to give up my life to give it to you and enter into your kingdom and do things your way. I repent of my old way. I want your way. Jesus will receive you with open arms into the kingdom, transform you and keep you as a child of God, living like a child of God for the rest of your days and then for all eternity. He died on the cross for your sin. He was buried to prove that he was dead. And then he rose from the dead to give anyone who would believe in him new life and life everlasting. In this church, in the scripture, it's called being born again. It's called being regenerated. It's called coming to life spiritually. Will you affirm that today? Would you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ saves sinners that repent. For the rest of us, what areas of pride do we have? God may humble us. Do we need to deal with things in our lives? Are we arrogant? Are we proud? God is a God of grace. He forgives you, sinner. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for your salvation. We love you. We trust you. Save souls today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.